Well, hi, everybody. I'm going to join in. Janet's welcome to everybody. Um, my name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and, um, you know, happy, happy new year. This is going to be our last uh, meeting of the year before we start a new year. <clears throat> You'll excuse me if I cough occasionally and blow my nose. I'll do my best. Um, I've recovered, but I still get sick, right? I still get, we still get colds. I haven't recovered from that. I'm still human. Um, so before I actually delve into the topic, um, which is entitled, what does it mean to be recovered? I, I always like to start off any talk with a quick qualification um, so that someone listening to me speak understands and knows that um, I have the required experience with this disease of compulsive overeating and that I have in fact suffered from it and that I understand all about this terrible, terrible illness. Um, you know, my quick qualification is from the time I was a very little girl, I had a very different experience with food than, than my family, than people around me, than my friends. I seemed to like eating, <laughs> more than other people around me. And yet I actually didn't receive the same pleasure from it as it seemed like they were getting, which is crazy that you like something so much or appear that you like it so much and yet not really be able to get pleasure from it, which because what I have is insatiable where food is concerned. So I have, you know, what I say is that from a, really young girl, I had this like spot, you know, inside me that I was like, oh, I just wanted to hit that spot. You know, you eat something, you're like, oh, that, that really, that hit it. I have a spot that can't get hit. And, and I felt it from a very young age that it was always, um, my mind, um, no matter what the situation was around me, um, my mind always seemed to convince me that food and eating was the logical thing to be doing, whether it was family get-togethers or whether it was time with my friends or whether it was getting home from school. You know, it was just a consistent thing that I felt drawn to do. And, um, and so I suffered from being overweight because I was constantly eating um, and constantly dieting. So then I went on my first diet, I was young. My parents really did the best they could. They did not mean to cause me any harm. And early on in my recovery, or what I thought was gonna be recovery was, I thought I was gonna examine what they did to cause this. Like I really wanted to assign blame to them. And I would say, well, it was because my mother put me on a diet at a young age, or well, it was because my my siblings called me names because I was overweight. And um, whether that's true or not true, it's really insignificant. But what I've come to understand, especially through the working of the steps, is nobody set out to do this to me. There was never an intention to hurt me. Um, my parents tried their best. And I had a relationship with diets from the time I was a very little girl. I started dieting by the time I was nine years old. And I had years of 
very successful dieting. You know, my mom was really, she loved me so much that she would make recipes that were low calorie. She knew how to make me dessert. She knew how to right, do all sorts of tricks and things. And they worked for a while. Um, but what I have is more than just a weight problem. I have a spiritual malady um, that always drove me back into the arms of the food. And so I began to eat in secret. Um, you know, I, yeah, I began to binge in secret. I, you know, was always dieting and then losing my ability to stay on the diet. And I had years of being a normal weight. And then about the time I was 14, I crossed a line. And in my high school years, I went from beginning of high school, I went on a very strict diet where I lost a lot of weight really quick. And I wasn't overweight to begin with, but I got super duper skinny. And then something happened. I came home one day, there was something in the freezer. I ate it. And I, I, it's like, I crossed a line that day, something happened to me. And, and this problem that I had before exploded. And it just, in my high school, I went from being very, very thin to gaining a hundred pounds by the time I graduated high school. And, um, and my boy and my parents try hard. <laughs> they threw every Every idea, every every plan, every scheme, lots of money, um, and I was right on board with them, right? And so what has happened to me since is I no longer live that way. I have been completely relieved of the desire to use food for anything other than nutrition. You know, I eat my meals, they're weighed and measured, they're committed, they're abstinent, um, and they're quiet. Food is quiet. And I've been relieved of diets and schemes. I'm not interested in dieting. Um, and I feel when I have that sense that I can't get fulfilled inside, I've got a source that is far greater than anything I could put in my mouth that hits that spot for me every time. And that's a relationship with God. That's what it means for me. So um, one of the things that happened for me was I started hearing, and I'd been in and out of the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, and I heard the last time I came in and stayed, I heard people identify themselves as recovered, which was something I had not heard before. And it blew my mind. I, I, I couldn't believe what they were saying. I was both interested and outraged. I was like, how dare they say that? What did they say? Like, I just couldn't stop listening because I was, I, I got hope from that word. And that's what I hope to bring tonight. That the usage of the word recovered is not to be a mark in, in this sort of like I'm on this side and all you poor people are on the others, you know, right? Like it's not a mark of superiority. It's not, it's not a place now I've arrived. It's a word that's supposed to invite hope that if I can recover, so can you, right? If I can recover, it is possible for anybody here. And, you know, in, in researching this topic, um, 
And I found there's a story and it was um, by Pat C and uh, from Los Angeles, California. And the story was called The Lone Endeavor. And it was in the big book's first edition. And it actually was, it's not in there any longer. Um, the story has been removed. And, and here's, um, here's what it says in The Lone Endeavor. It says, it talks about this young man's mother who found out about people recovered, found out that people could recover. And it says here, so this mother read the short medical article with a heavy heart for she was constantly on the alert to find something which might prove helpful for her son. The article gave only a vague hey, hint. Susan S, this is Karen. Karen S, I mean, Susan, I don't know you're by, Found by many alcoholics, which is fully covered in this book. But the mother immediately wrote to the doctor explaining her heartbreaking problem and requesting further information. She felt there must be someone. And surely if other men had recovered from alcoholism, her son also had a chance. And so that's what that word is supposed to help us to, to know that if others can, so you have a chance as well. And, you know, in one of the readings that I, I had done, it, this was the first person to recover. This man recovered without having any personal contact, but solely from reading the book. And the sad truth is that this man did not remain recovered. And that's why it was removed. The story was removed because when they went to meet him to discuss, you know, what about what happened with him, and his wonderful story, he was drunk. And so the story had to be removed. Um, and I wonder if that's because the book alone, although a powerful text is really not enough without human contact. And that is a whole other topic that we talk about, about fellowship, that part of being recovered does not mean that I go off and now I live this life alone without the benefit of a recovery community, we absolutely, in order to remain recovered, we must have frequent contact with others. Um, you know, and so this topic about being recovered is in no way to invite controversy, you know, nor to like debate the question of the verbiage recovery versus recovering. Um, and you know, and like I said, it's not to put anybody on a spiritual hilltop, nor do I believe that my experience is unique. It's not unique. And it's not something that I've done better than anyone else. My hope is to only offer hope to the still sick and suffering compulsive overeater, much like this mother felt that if others could recover, then her son had a chance. And the knowledge that others recovered gave this mom hope. And so that's my intention. And that's the whole purpose of this talk. And in fact, that has to be my purpose anytime I open up my mouth in a meeting. And I would say that's part of the definition of what it means to be recovered. That when we speak in meetings, those who have been relieved, it's not to um, promote ourselves. 
it's not to sell ourselves. It's not to talk about how wonderful we are, but it's always to offer hope that our eyes always have to be scanning the room or the Zoom page for the person who looks like they might need a shot of hope, right? That's our purpose. So can you actually recover? Is that really true? And well, on the title page, it says that the story of many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism, right? It's on the title page. And in the first edition, it says 100, but by the fourth, it says many thousands, right? That should be a testimony. And, you know, and actually if it's on the title page of the book, clearly it's saying just exactly what's gonna be covered in the pages. A title tells the reader what they're reading and it's like an advertisement. It's a way of selling the book. You know, in the forward to the first edition, it says we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we've recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further testimony, no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we are sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. So now I'm being told that what I can recover from, what is it that I recover from? A seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And, you know, I thought that the food addiction was going to be something that I would have to fight for the rest of my life. I believed that the best that I could hope for was a recovery whereby I would learn some strategies for living with the miserable state of denying myself the foods that everyone else around me got to eat. And I was hoping that my willpower was gonna get stronger. That's what I thought it was gonna mean. Um, and I had no interest or thought that my way of living was even remotely related to this condition. I had no idea that it was the way that I was living that was part of this. That was the biggest part of this. Um, I did not understand that I was sick, both bodily and mentally. I did not understand that my recovery had the opportunity to improve the lives of others. I did not even think that recovery meant improved lives. I just thought that by getting thinner, I'd be happier. The end. Like, that's what I came here for. And I look at it now and I think, my God, I was dreaming so small. I didn't even know how to dream properly. Right? Nearly, it says nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. So this tells me, and that's on page 17, this tells me that the majority of the people who followed these directions have recovered. And I'm being given a little more information about what was solved. What was solved? The drink problem. Well, if the drink problem is solved, that doesn't sound like 
the struggling state of more willpower, like I thought. It doesn't sound like suffering. If I have a problem and I'm being told that there's a group of people who once had this same problem and now they don't, certainly my interest should get piqued. It should like get me very interested, which is, you know, where you guys all came in for me because I remembered hearing voices saying that their, that their reality was that they no longer wanted the food, right? And although I thought at first, there's no way that this could be true, my curiosity was piqued enough that I was able to take some action. And it says now, further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. Page 29. So we get clear-cut directions. Directions, right? The text, the big book gives me directions, clear-cut directions. So I won't be confused by the directions. And it's not going to be a take what you want and leave the rest. If you want to recover, you're going to follow directions to recover. And then you need to follow the directions sequentially and precisely. Much like, you know, if you went to a doctor to receive treatment for any other disease, you know, if the doctor reassures you that you can recover, but you'll need to follow a course of treatment, you would look at the success rate of this treatment. That's what I would do. I would say, well, okay, wait a second. So how many people get well following this treatment? And if you believed after looking at the success rate that it was effective and that what you were suffering from was fatal and progressive, which is what we're told, it's fatal and progressive, then you would completely, hopefully follow the course of treatment, right? And not skip some of it because you didn't like it, right? Because it was inconvenient. Um, you would do you know, you wouldn't do some of it and then conclude that this illness was incurable, right? If you didn't follow the whole course of treatment and you said, oh yeah, it didn't work. I, I guess I can't get better from it. You know, but here, here lies the problem with this particular disease is the sufferer has no enthusiasm for the treatment. Oftentimes, very unenthusiastic about getting well. And since it's a disease that's a form of insanity, what happens is insane reasoning often wins out. That's what we're told. And it makes for a difficult problem. Difficult, right? Seemingly hopeless, not hopeless, because the good news is that there is a power, God, that can override difficult problems, right? That God can in fact give us miracles. So what does it mean to be recovered then? All right, so if I'm telling you that you can recover, next I'm gonna tell you how, by following the directions in the book, right? The steps. And so now, now let's talk about, all right, so then what does it mean to actually be recovered? What is that like? What does it look like? What does life look like? And how is it different from what it was like before? So, you know, if you remember in the beginning, I was telling you my story. I said that I had a mind that always convinced me to eat. But I, I, I would say I have this thing, it's a very specific type of senility. It's, it's food senility. It's a mind that um, fails to remember just how bad it gets 
every time I eat certain foods and in certain ways. And I can't remember with sufficient force the horrible pain that always comes after I succumb to that first compulsive bite. And, and for me before it was like the disease was a stalker and it always hunted me down and I always let it in. It always got me to open the door, I'd open the door and then I'd be surprised by what happened afterwards. And the disease overwhelmed and powered me, it overpowered me. And I felt when I was abstinent only, and not recovered, I felt like the desire oftentimes was like a tiger, like a very powerful tiger and my willpower was a cage. And the cage never worked long-term. It always broke up. And I was hoping that Overeaters Anonymous would get me a strong cage. Like you were gonna teach me how to get a really strong cage. And I thought the best I could hope for was just that. And I would hear at meetings, people say things that supported that idea. People saying things like, you gotta take the tiger out of the cage three times a day and get it back in safely. And, and when I came to learn, that is not the truth. That is not my truth today. Um, what it means to be recovered is the tiger is no longer a tiger, it becomes a kitten. That's what happens. It does not overpower me. I don't desire food the way that I once did. It's not that powerful beast. And that's what it means to be recovered. And that's just one aspect of this incredible gift. For me, page 25 really explains exactly what it means to be recovered. It's probably my favorite paragraph in the book. The great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He's commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So for me, what does it mean to be recovered? Is that I've had this very powerful experience where I have a very different attitude towards life. I don't feel the way I once felt towards people and towards God's universe, towards all of the creation. And I believe Without a shadow of a doubt, it is the most important fact of my life that God, like, can you imagine the, the same power that created this beautiful, incredible world, universe, came inside my heart, entered my heart, and changed my life, and continues to live there and do this consistently, daily. And when God does that, when God enters your heart and lives within you and has a whole new way of living, the desire to eat compulsively seems ridiculous. It just doesn't, it's like it doesn't even cross my mind. It's like those thoughts no longer exist. Most of the time, I'm almost like shocked that I walk through events and days with no thought 
whatsoever. And oftentimes I do put it on my gratitude because I never want to forget the blessed miracle of being relieved of the thing that once owned me, right? Um, most of us in OA are familiar with the nine step promises and likely the 10 step promises too. And recovered means that you are experiencing these promises. So here's the promises associated with step nine. And these are found on page 83 to 84. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our, our experience can benefit others. The feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us which we could not do for ourselves. And so what does it mean to be recovered? Well, today I'm free. I feel free, free from the food. And the majority of the time, free from anger and fear. Not 100%, but most of the time I don't feel afraid and I'm not angry. Um, and when I am, my, my bounce back is quick. I come back from it pretty quick. Um, I'm optimistic. I have a basic belief that God has a plan and it's a good one. And that's my belief. And with that belief, I feel optimistic. I don't regret my past. I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. I really understand what it means to be serene and peaceful. And the reason I don't regret my past and I'm not ashamed of it is because I've been able to use it to be helpful. Anything that I've done, you know, when I, when I offer it for others as a demonstration of the way God's power worked in my life, um, I don't regret those things anymore. I understand what it means to be serene and peaceful. All of my experiences, especially the painful and humiliating ones, are now powerful examples that I can share to help someone else. And I use these stories when I work with sponsees. I use them when I'm reaching out. You know, I use them when I'm talking here. I think like one of the most humiliating things that I've experienced was like breaking toilet seats. Like I've broken toilet seats and more than on one occasion. And, and you know, humiliation of not fitting in the armchairs in my own kitchen. And I felt humiliated every time I walked on a plane, like every time I had to walk down an aisle and see people's eyes avert, looking away, thinking, please don't let her sit next to me. I don't have to feel the same embarrassment, humiliation about that anymore, because what it actually does is it's grown my compassion and empathy for others. And when I say, you know, that my purpose is to offer hope, when I come onto a meeting, I'm looking for the person who might be suffering those same humiliating experiences. And I know that my story helps them 
I know that it offers them hope because I'm no longer living that way. And I can speak to them of the pain and the humiliation of those experiences and that we're not bound to them anymore, that we can actually overcome all of those. Um, you know, now I'd say all those experiences, they're like my golden ticket because with it, I gain entry into usefulness. The painful past becomes my greatest asset. That's what we're told. It's a chat, it's a paragraph in the family after page 124. It says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to light and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death or misery for them. So I have a, I have a very healthy self-esteem today. And it's not because of my huge accomplishments, but because of my painful past, I'm actually able to, to offer esteemable acts, offer a, able to help people in ways that I couldn't do before. I don't feel useless spending day after day on the couch or sitting on the sidelines watching others living and feeling sorry for myself. That was the way I lived at one point. I'm an active participant in my own life. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid of fitting in. I'm not afraid of being disliked most of the time or left out most of the time. Not that that never happens. Doesn't mean that you never get left out again or you never you know, aren't liked again. That, that's not what it means to be recovered but it means I'm not living in fear of it. I'm not living owned by it. I don't feel consumed by thoughts of me and getting my needs and desires met. In the moments when my feelings are hurt, I lean into this incredibly loving creator who is there in those unsettling moments and gives me strength and comfort, right? And that's something I can rely on. Um, I have trust that I'm gonna get just what I need. I trust that. I actually genuinely find myself thinking about others more and more. Rather than being self-centered, I do feel majority of the time other-centered. And today I have a much keener intuition. That was another promise that we get. That this intuitive knowledge of things, I understand things without the same need for conscious reasoning. Situations that used to find me spinning my wheels, second guessing myself, I just somehow know how to approach them. You know, I know that all of this is coming right from God. It's not coming from me. It's not a creation of me. I'm no longer relying on my own human finite power, but on the infinite power of God. And the promises associated with step 10 says, this is on page 84 to 85. And we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, even food. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in the liquor or in, or in eating off our plan. If tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. And we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. 
That's the miracle of this. It's a miracle. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a, pos in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react as long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And then further on down the page, it says, if we've carefully followed directions, we've begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. So now looking at this, it spells out, I don't fight. Nothing. To me, that, that's a big um, that's a big characteristic of being recovered, that my fight is gone. I don't fight my weight. I don't fight my food plan. I don't fight a suggestion my sponsor makes. I don't fight with my employer. I'm not fighting my family. I don't fight fellows. I don't fight with sponsees, not with people, you know, calling me looking for some guidance. And I certainly don't fight with food. My job is to be a peacemaker. That's what it means to be recovered, that I'm supposed to bring peace to all situations. And I think what a blessed miracle to not be fighting the, the desire at all. You know, I feel sane today. Um, I'm not interested in the food that was once problematic for me. It doesn't even look appealing or enticing. You know, the joke is in this house, the rooms where I do my meetings in are the rooms where they hide the candy. It's crazy. They actually have hidden candy in the room because they know I'm not touching it. It's an end. I could care less. It means nothing. It doesn't. That was done to me, not by me. That's a miracle. That's what it means to be recovered. Um, you know, I used to love for me, anything deep fried, like we had a joke here that you could put anything in the deep fryer and I would eat it. You know, we would eat it. It was like everything fried. And actually what happens for me as a result of this program is God is so good to me. He changed my taste in food that those things, they, they look disgusting to me now. I like see them and they don't smell good. It looks shiny. I'm like, the food looks like greasy and shiny and it actually makes me feel sick to my stomach. And um, when I say that I love my raw vegetables, I am not pretending. It's like, it was done to me. It was just, you know, it was just done to me. I, I really genuinely feel that way. I like the food that I eat. It tastes good, but it's quiet. I don't, get up in the middle of the night and think about what's downstairs in the fridge. Ever, ever. Um, you know, I, I, I happily weigh and measure my food. It, it's very like mindless. It's just what I do. That's become automatic. You know, the, the, the food senility that I explained earlier that I suffered from, it's been healed. I feel sane and normal around food, which seems like a contradiction 
for someone who puts things on a scale, for someone who plans my food out. I plan my food out and I tell another grown up on a daily basis. How is that that that's normal and sane around the food? Well, it is if you've got a deadly allergy and you know it and accept it. That's a normal way to behave, you know, and I think the the definition of normal depends on the circles that you run with. In our circle, that's normal. That's normal behavior for us. Um, I often find myself, you know, um, at social gatherings and I'm blessed. I've got a really large family and now some of my family members, they get my food. You know, they understand it and they understand my recovery thing. And they're really sweet about asking me questions or offering. Sometimes they offer me up as though I'm a, I'm an expert on, on, on food and nutrition. And I'm, I'm no expert. I just follow a food plan. Um, and, you know, um, and I, occasionally I have relatives who will press me and say, come on, you've got such great willpower. You've been doing this for so long. You should be able to eat anything. You could have a piece now. I know that you'd be fine. And I don't even fight that either. I'm not interested in fighting it. I smile and I just say, oh, you're so sweet. You know, that's it. I don't, I don't get involved in it. And then I lovingly just move the conversation to one of their grandchildren because my siblings all have grandbabies and they love to talk about their grandbabies. And that's like a surefire way to get it off of me and my food and onto something where I'm far more useful. Um, you know, I feel today this awareness of God in my life and I feel the flow of his spirit into me, which is exactly what I needed all along. A close connection with power to save me from powerlessness. And that's what hits that spot that I could never get hit with before. The flow of his spirit into me always hits that spot. It always relieves me. You know, here's the promises associated with the 11th step, which is another characteristic of what it means to be recovered. Page 87 through 88, it says, what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. And then further, it says, we are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. So, you know, early on in recovery, I would get these occasional moments where I would just know the right course to take. And it would, it would like boggle my mind, but a situation would come up, whether it's at work or at home. And I just found that while I was scratching my head, wondering, what am I supposed to do? This idea would pop into my brain in a way that it hadn't been there before. And more and more now, what I'd say is, I actually find that I'm scratching my head wondering less and less. I just think differently today. I, I seek God's direction and I seek God's presence in my life more and more. And the more I seek it, 
the more it's available to me. And in, in We Agnostics on page 55, it says, we are assured that the consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. So now, what does it mean to be recovered? I'm, I'm awake to my own belief. I can actually rely on my brain to think clearly. I don't get excited or frightened or angry or overly emotional the same way I used to. Not to say I never get overly emotional, you know, but, but not the way that I used to. And for me growing up, my parents would always tease me that I would get worked up. I always was like worked up over things. And they, they said I was overly emotional. They said, you're so emotional. And my nickname was Desdemona. That's what they called me because I was emotional and tragic. Everything was like a big, oh, you know, um, and it was in, by the way, I look at it now and it was, it was a seek, it was attention seeking strategies. It was what I did. It was selfish. It was self-centeredness to be the problem in the room at all times. It, it, you know, it got me attention. And today I'm steady and calm and things don't freak me out the same way. And most of the time I'm told by people, my gosh, you're so mellow. You're so laid back. And, you know, 13 years ago now, my dad passed. And when my father first got sick, um, my mom and my oldest brothers kept it from me for a few days. They found out that my dad had cancer, that my dad needed to um, have his kidneys removed and that he was going to go on dialysis. And it was really looking pretty bleak. And um, they didn't tell me for a few days. And when I found out, I was immediately angry at them. I was angry. That was my response. And I questioned, why didn't they tell me? And my mom's response was because she didn't want to upset me. And I remembered being even angry at her. I thought that is unreasonable. I'm not supposed to be upset. I was like, I was mad at them. And I look at it now and I think, my God, it must have been so exhausting to have to deal with an overly emotional Desdemona while there was a real crisis going on that I should not have been the crisis that they were trying to keep quiet and calm. And since being recovered, that's not the experience anymore. Now, luckily or not so luckily, I'm the first to know when there's a problem. <laughs> they come to me immediately because I don't, I, it's, not, it's not my problem, right? I don't, take everything through the filter that I'm the center of the universe and it's happening to me. Um, you know, the most amazing thing is to be relieved of that panicky feeling I used to feel when I was emotional or when I didn't know what I needed to do. And today, when I feel that, I trust that the right answers are gonna come. I can actually show up in love and comfort for people when they're going through hard times. The true definition of what it means to be recovered is that I've had a spiritual awakening, a personality change, which has rewired my heart and driven out the desire to eat compulsively. Now, um, today it says in the family afterward that we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. So, it says further on that we have recovered and have been given the power to help others. And that's why we can laugh. 
I'm genuinely cheerful today. It's not a fake smile, but I actually feel cheerful a good deal of the time. I can laugh over the things that used to rock my world. Somehow I have a better perspective on things. You know, the other thing that the paragraph points out is that I'm useful. I have something to offer others, whether it's my fellows, my sponsees, my kids, my husband, my mother, my siblings, just people generally in the world. Um, you know, in the family afterwards, it also says that we have recovered from serious drinking or miracles of mental health. But we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies. Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. And what this paragraph reassures me is that we have improvements that are visible in our appearances, but also in our mental wellness. And while this does not mean that we just, if you're on, if you're on medication because you have a mental health condition, please do not misinterpret me saying, well, if you've recovered, get off your meds. Absolutely not. You know, we still often seek outside help for problems. And what I found out is that for myself included, when I had had to seek outside help for problems, the course of treatment is more successful in a recovered person than they would be without being recovered. My body does not resemble the way that it once looked. You know, I've had a physical transformation. I'm generally... Um, I feel like smiling. I feel happy, you know, which is why we, we do put on our cameras. We do share, you know, I do, I put on, I'm, I've got a cold today, but I'm not, thank you, God. I'm not dying of having a cold. I feel good enough that I could take a power nap. I took a nice shower. I fixed my makeup a little bit. Why? Because I want to offer hope. I do feel cheerful and positive. And I feel like, you know, to the best of my ability, I want to represent that we have got a God of miracles here and that if God can transform my bodies, you know, it's because he's got important work for us to do. And I want to appear in a way that tells others the good news that this does work. Um, we have a, a sense of peace and serenity and we get a kick out of life such as one seldom encounters except in the very young. It says that in the, in the keys to the kingdom, it talks about getting a kick out of life. And I, you know, and I've often shared with you guys that I'm a second grade teacher. And what has actually happened to me as an educator is unbelievable. I am no longer the superstar in my building. Anybody who knows me well enough has seen my inventories to attest that I am not I am not the, I'm not the star. I'm not the, the teacher's pet of my principal. Nobody's like writing a, a big, you know, testament of how wonderful I am. But what happens is I'm getting a kick out of life. I feel joy, genuine joy about the work that I do. I'm not most of the time chasing down praise or accolades. Occasionally I get off course and I've got this plan this set of directions that gets me right back aligned. And what happens is, is that I have fallen in love with the craft of instruction and that I bring a kick out of life into the room 
that I'm that I'm with my students that I'm I actually realize holy smokes I get to be with seven and eight year olds all day long and I get to have fun I can have a I can get a kick out of life and I was not able to do that before you know I don't I don't need to yell I don't need to lose my patience um and I can demonstrate you know God's presence wherever I go and one of the practices that I've done to help me get peaceful and serene and enjoy the life that I've given is I actually invite God's presence in every room that I'm in. You know, I was struggling for a little bit, um, you know, a couple of months ago in, in the classroom, I was realizing I was getting heated over things. Then I set a timer on my phone to remind me to pray and, and so what does it mean to be recovered is I invite God's presence in and God's power is miraculous. Um, and so that's what I wanted to share tonight. With that, I will pass.